Welcome to episode seven of the Prolific Christian Writer Podcast. Today we talk to award-winning and best-selling fiction author, the wordslinger, Kevin Tumlinson. We talk about being a Christian and writing fiction. We also discuss the mindset and life of a writer and why Christians should look into self-publishing. Well, let's hear what the wordslinger has to say. Welcome to the Prolific Christian Writer Podcast, where we believe you can change the world with your words. Follow an indie author and pastor and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on how you can honor Christ and change the world by writing fast, writing often, and writing well. I'm your host, Tian Doan. Now let's get on with today's show. I hope you're doing well. I'm recording this the week right after Thanksgiving 2017. I just wanted to give you an update about my projects. This year, earlier this year, I published uh, two books, and they're both uh, doing well on uh, Amazon. And uh, the first one's called The Life Path, and the second book is called Blessable. It was my goal to publish three books this year, and it is almost December, so I have a short uh, a window to complete my goal. I'm working on my third book, but uh, it, I'm actually having a little bit of trouble, and it's getting a little bit too long, and uh, so I'm actually deciding to uh, split this book up into two shorter books, because it was going to be uh, way over 300 pages, and so if I split the book up into two shorter books, that's great news, because that would mean that I should be done with my first draft of my third book this week, in then it's on to editing, formatting, book design, etc. And hopefully I'll get it out before Christmas. My uh, third book is a book on uh, spiritual warfare. And it's kind of a part Bible study, part coaching, part inspirational, and part uh, personal memoir. And my influences in writing are, are kind of wide and broad because uh, I read a lot of books and especially uh, Christian books. They, they, you get a lot of content. But honestly, uh, most of the books I, I read are kind of boring. And I try to add some humor and some stories into my writing. So uh, the, in the books, in my books, that I, I try to be a mixture between Tim Keller Chuck Swindoll with the with the Bible stuff, but also uh, to be real and personal, it's like someone like Anne Lamott, um, but also add some humor elements into it. You know, observational humor like like Jerry Seinfeld, and also to be kind of like a journalist and and to look at life a little bit differently, like Malcolm Gladwell. So that's what I, I try my uh, try to have my books be a combination of all those things. And so this third book will probably be around a hundred. 120, 130 pages, and as I said, it's a book on spiritual warfare. I'm still playing around with a couple of different titles. Um, I'm thinking about calling it The Art of Spiritual Warfare, kind of playing on that Sun Tzu book, The Art of War. Uh, another idea that I'm working on playing with is uh, Dangers, Toils, and Snares, like from the, the hymn Amazing Grace, but uh, I'm not fully settled on either one. But if you are interested in um, being an advanced reviewer, getting a beta copy of this book before it's released, uh, let me know. You could go to my website. You can sign up there. Uh, my website is tiendone.net. It's, it's spelled T-H-I-E-N-D-O-A-N.net. Or you can shoot me an email at tien at tiendone.net. Let me know that you want to be one of the uh, beta readers uh, to get an advanced uh, reviewer copy. 
today, I'm excited to have uh, a guest on the show that I've been wanting to talk to for a while. Uh, my guest today is Kevin Tumlinson. I'm super excited to have him because Kevin is a huge part of the self-publishing independent author revolution. He's written a bunch of books. I'm not even sure how many. He's a podcaster. He hosts four different podcasts in the the self-publishing uh, genre. Uh, his his primary podcast is called the Wordslinger Podcast. Um, he speaks at writer conferences, and he works for a company called draft to digital which has a lot of cool free services for indie authors, like ebook conversion, formatting your ebooks, uh, formatting your print books, and they'll, they'll help you distribute your books uh, also. Um, I'm a huge fan of Kevin's podcast. Uh, when I was getting started, I, I would listen to his podcast uh, each week, and I went back and I listened to all the early episode. Man, I learned so much from him. And the cool thing is, uh, he's a Christian, and he has a lot to say about the publishing business. He doesn't write in Christian genre. He he writes thrillers and sci-fi things like that. But uh, I wanted to interview him and just to ask him about the self-publishing business and how it applies to Christian authors and Christian books. So uh, you're in for a real treat. And so we're going to talk to the wordslinger himself, Kevin Tumlinson. Well, today I have on the show Kevin Tumlinson. He's a best-selling and award-winning sci-fi and thriller author, including his books in the Dan Kotler series. He's also the host of the popular Wordslinger podcast, He's the director of marketing for draft to digital a company that helps independent authors format and publish their books. And he goes by the amazingly awesome nickname, the word slinger. So Kevin, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Uh, so what's a word slinger? Uh, you know, the backstory on that is that I, I, you know, I used to be a copywriter, uh, full time. Uh, when I got into copywriting for marketing, I, I worked at an agency where they encouraged us to have, uh, create our own job titles. And, uh, I came up with a couple, um, over the, over the couple of years that I worked there, but this is the one that really stuck. And it was, uh, everyone kind of assumes that it me, you know, it took the whole thing from like gunslinger, like I'm, you know, a big fan of Westerns or something. But the reality <laughs> is I'm a big fan of Spider-Man and, uh, oh, web slinger. <laughs> there you the go. Web slinger. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's that. That's it. That's sort of my super, superhero code name. We'll say. Yeah. Friendly Words. neighborhood, uh, word slinger. That's mm -hmm. great. Um, that's right up there with my, uh, uh, favorite author nicknames. It, it, your, your nickname is probably my second favorite. I think, uh, Chuck Wendig calls himself the pen monkey. So oh, I, like, okay. I, I like pen All monkey right. also. I'm that's kind of have fun. a little conversation with Chuck. <laughs> See what I can do to get on, on that top slot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I like the, I like the Spider-Man reference. I, I think, uh, they, that might, uh, make it a tie. There so Kevin, uh, tell us about your upbringing. Um, how, how, and how that shaped you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. I, you know, I grew up in a, um, a little town, kind of a territory called Wild Peach, Texas, which is about 70, 75 miles south of Houston. Um, it's a, you know, it was a, it's a village it, uh, officially. And uh, I grew up with, uh, you know, surrounded by lots of family. I, my, my mother and my stepfather divorced when I was pretty young and I ended up living with my grandparents for most of my uh, young life, you know, right up until college years. And, uh, you know, we were, 
you know, it was, it's a, the best kind of upbringing, I think, for an author, honestly. Uh, there were no tragedies, really, in my life other than, you know, divorce. And there were deaths and that sort of thing. But it wasn't really uh, one of those classic tragic upbringings. But I did grow up in a place where I could explore and be, you know, <laughs> exactly who I wanted to be. Um, I was constantly trouncing around in the woods and building things out of junk I found and that sort of thing. And it just was a very, uh, it encouraged imagination, we'll say. Um, but yeah, I, and it, I had a very, uh, we, I was raised Baptist, Southern Baptist, and we had a, uh, a is, very is that active. Baptist with a D like Baptist? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it yeah. was dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and that was, um, that was my that was my circle of friends. Honestly, that was my that was an extension of my family growing up in that church. Very different kind of Southern Baptist church than what I've encountered since then. Um, and it, it, it's it was a bit of culture shock for me to move out of that area and then start you know trying to find a church elsewhere because that church we were all very close. Uh, it was kind of experimental. We would, uh, you know, there was very little judgment. <laughs> and most of the uh, Baptist church, churches I've attended since then, it just feels a little judgy at times. But that one, uh, <laughs> it was not, not, there was no real judgment. We, uh, you know, we had a great sort of family atmosphere. And that also shaped a lot of my uh, early life and career. Uh, not just early life. I mean, my current life has been shaped a great deal by that whole experience. So some of the best people I've known in my life came out of my uh, church family back then. <laughs> so who, who made the biggest impact in your life? Um, you know, early on, it was a youth minister, uh, also a music leader at our church named Steve Evans. And he is a pastor of his own church now. Uh, we haven't talked in quite a few years, but uh, we've had some, some contact here and there. And, um, you know, that guy probably shaped a lot of my early personality. Um, because he was he was kind of a wisecracker and he was, you know, he was multi talented and multi faceted, you know, something of a Renaissance man himself, and um, you know, he encouraged everyone in the in the group to be uh, who they were. I, I and you know, actually, inadvertently, I didn't even realize I was doing it at the time, but I sort of followed in his footsteps to uh, attend Houston Baptist University. Um, he had gone and gotten a uh, degree in music. I. I went for literature and uh, mass media and communications, that sort of thing. So we had, and I ended up uh, getting a master's degree in education there as well. So, um, you know, he was a big influence in, in my life early on. You know, other heroes in my life had really little to do with my faith, but uh, I still consider them, you know, sort of very influential. Um, oddly enough, I got a lot of fictional characters in my <laughs> In my list of influencers, which I don't think is all that unusual for for a fiction writer, I guess. What uh, what books made the biggest impact in your life? So um, I was an early reader of everything. Um, there was a series of books called Encyclopedia Brown, which I, I, I realize now had a much bigger influence on me than I, I ever really thought. But... I was was it a children's adventure type thing? Or? Yeah, that was a boy detective. Uh, okay, Encyclopedia Brown. You could, he was uh, his father. I think was the police chief in town, and and he would occasionally bring cases home and talk about them at the dinner table, and his son w would go out yeah. and solve those cases um, cool. all, all on his own. So he was a sort of genius. That was my early exposure to the idea of uh, the individual genius. Um, 
and sort of the uh, multi, mostly multidisciplined genius at that. That's cool. Um, so those books were a big influence when I was young, uh, very young. Later, I encountered um, the work of Orson Scott Card initially through his book Ender's Game, which mm-hmm. you know, if you've written science fiction or read science fiction uh, at any point in your life, you've encountered Ender's Game. Uh, that that book probably was the most influential book on my life and career. Um, it was after reading that that I had this epiphany that, uh, you know, this guy had written this book. A human being wrote this book. I'm a human being, and therefore I could write books. And so I, I emulated that guy quite a bit uh, early on. And I, to this day, I, I believe he is probably the strongest influence on my voice in writing. Um, how how old was, were you when you read Ender's Game? Uh, let's see. I read that... Uh, I would have been in ninth grade, I believe, just just around ninth grade. So, so did the ending of that book blow your mind? Did it just blow your mind? Did you throw the you book know, out the, the time, window? Or? Yeah, it, it did because, uh, you know, at the time that wasn't a very common idea. Nowadays, uh, people pick that ending up right away because it's been done. Yeah. Uh, it's been done a hundred times. Um, but, that, you know, no, at the time that, that did kind of blow me away. Um, although I don't think it was the ending that really – that really dropped my jaw. It was, you know, the idea of the battle room, the idea of this young child, uh, being Mm -hmm. again, a a boy genius, you know, um, I've always been enamored with that idea. Um, the outcast becoming the leader kind of thing. those are the, those are the, um, sort of notes of that story that really resonated with me. And, uh, I was, you know, hooked. I mean, I read everything I could get my hands on from that guy, uh, from that point forward. And, you know, it bears saying, I mean, I, I've been writing since I was very young. I, 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 I tell everyone I wrote my first book when I was five years old and I'm not even kidding. I mean, I wrote, <laughs> uh, now it was a five page book, um, handwritten, <laughs> but, um, I had an interest in that and in storytelling from early on. And I've, I've written professionally since I was 12, uh, meaning I, I've been paid for it, but the, you know, picking up the, that book, Ender's Game, um, was the game changer for me. Whereas before I had always thought about the idea of writing short stories, writing novels, uh, you know, having that as part of a, a, I I did it because it was fun. Never occurred to me that it was something that could be done as a career until I read that book. Wow. I don't know what it was about that book specifically that made me think of it in terms of career. Maybe there was an afterward or an author's note at the beginning or something along those lines, but uh, that was the one that set me on the path, and I've I've been writing ever since. <laughs> so, so when did you uh, take it seriously? Like like have this idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna write. I'm gonna be an author. I'm gonna be a word slinger. When you did you have look, that idea? Yeah, if you were to pick up um, my yearbooks, and I've got a few floating around uh, from that era of my life, there are comments in there from other people. Uh, you know, wishing me luck on my writing career, wishing me luck on all the things that essentially all the things I do now. Um, Mm -hmm. I I always intended to write. Um, that said, the great irony of my life is I intended it, but didn't quite catch on that I could start doing it right then and there. Um, so everything I did in my career was all geared around, you know, one day I'll retire from whatever this is. I'll make my millions doing this and then I can write full time. And that was the way I thought of that career. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
it was not until much, much later, like only within the past, I'd say around 2008, honestly, when I started thinking of this in terms of being my career, like this is the work of my life is writing and publishing. And, uh, that, that, that whole thing came, you know, as a sort of slow realization because, and even in 2008, it wasn't quite, it hadn't quite gelled. It wasn't really until I'd say 2013 that I finally clicked to the idea that this was the career. I, I still catch myself sort of backsliding every now and then, <laughs> falling back into the trap of, uh, of thinking I'll do, I, you know, I'll go, I'll start this, I'll do this, I'll do X until, uh, you know, I can finally start writing full time. And I have to remind myself that writing is, is the job. Writing is what I do. Hmm. Uh, everything else I do supplements the writing. <laughs> hmm. That's good. So, uh, tell us, tell us about your books. I, um, tried to figure out how many books that you've written and I can't figure it out because there's so many different kinds, uh, different, uh, yeah. editions and things like that. So tell us about your books. You, you, uh, you've written in, uh, sci-fi and now it's a kind of right. action adventure thriller now. So tell us about, uh, what, what, uh, what you've been working on. I, I essentially started my author life as a, a sci-fi and fantasy author emulating Orson Scott Card once again, um, sort of writing cross genre there, but really writing the same stuff. Everything I write is very character driven. So, um, regardless of the genre, they're essentially the same stories. Um, I started writing sci-fi because that's what I loved. That's what I was used to. Uh, I always thought of myself as being a sci-fi writer. It wasn't until, uh, the past couple of years, like actually beginning of, uh, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, uh, I was dared to write a thriller, uh, by a writing partner of mine, Nick Thacker. And, uh, that, that changed the trajectory of my career, honestly. <laughs> so how many I, sci-fi books, uh, have you written? All right. Um, so I've got around 40 books total. I'd say probably 35 of those are, um, sci-fi and fantasy. And so, are they they're 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 shorter uh, additions, right? Like how, how long are the the average? Some are the, shorter, yeah. Uh, some are novellas most, and some are full. Some size. are novellas, yeah. Um, most are in the range of you know sixty to seventy thousand words, uh, which is a decent novel length for yeah. for most books. The um, the novellas tend to be in the thirty five to forty thousand range. Um, I don't have like a breakdown of how many of each of those I have, but the majority of the books are full length books. Um, and, uh, the novellas really kind of came as a consequence of trying to just, uh, create a larger body of work as quickly as possible, but also trying to tell stories that didn't necessarily fit a full length novel format. So I, I, I did adopt the uh, novella format early on as a, as a sort of favorite. And I think it, I think that that works well with, um, certain types of readers in the, uh, in the ebook world. I think the idea of having a quick and fun read is something that resonates well with, with certain readers. So I've been happy enough to supply that, but I've, oddly enough, I've, I've done very few, I've only done one novella in the, uh, my current Dan Kotler series. I want to talk about that for a a minute, but uh, uh, let's go back to 2008. What happened in 2008 and then what happened in 2013, or uh, you said, um, and must have been a lot because you got 40 books. So, yeah, I, so 2008, 2008, was that the first time you published uh, a book? That was the first time I published, uh, self-published. 
And okay. it came as the result of having gotten a, um, a traditional contract, right? I had gotten a contract. I had gotten an advance, a pretty good one. Um, but my, my contract was complete garbage. <laughs> it was just terrible. Uh, so I, as a result of that, I, I decided, well, I'll, I'll pay back the advance, which hurt. Um, that was, I, for a time, I thought that would be the end of my, hmm. my writing career. Uh, I really didn't think I would, I would recover from that. But at that point, indie publishing or self-publishing as it it's more commonly referred to. It started to kind of rear its head. Uh, new players were coming on the scene. Amazon was offering an ability, the ability to uh, to publish. Um, so I decided, well, I'll take another book because I I couldn't get the rights back to that first book for a good four year stretch. Um, so I wrote something else. I was actually. Wow, my brother-in-law and a good friend of mine, uh, we had started meeting regularly to uh, sort of hash out a story for something we wanted to produce online. Uh, this was back before Netflix and <laughs> Hulu and the, that sort of thing. So we were going to produce a an ongoing web series, hmm. and uh, we we all have TV and film backgrounds, so uh, we were going to pull this together. Uh, we started with the story. We'd get the story nailed down, and then we would you know, work out the logistics of, of producing it. Well, I, uh, I couldn't get my head around bits of the story. So I decided the best way to do that would be to write the book. And when then we could, we'd have a product we could base the whole thing on. So I wrote that book. I published it, uh, self published it. Um, and then I made a, the fateful decision to put the words, uh, book one of three on the cover without <laughs> any notion of, uh, you know, the other two books, like I had no idea. Um, but you know, as it turned out and I, for the next six years, I think I, I or maybe more uh, that, that really haunted me. <laughs> um, cause it took me, it took me two years to write the second book and another two years to even just get started on the third book. Um, by that point I'd also written a couple of other smaller things, but the, so Everything kind of started in 2008, but once I hit around 2012, um, it really started to occur to me that I, I wanted to do this and I wasn't putting the, the energy into it, right? <clears throat> I, I had yearned for this my whole life, but I wasn't putting any of myself into it. Um, so I started doing some research. I started following podcasts. I started reading more books. I started talking to some authors and, uh, and decided that if I was really going to do this, I needed to buckle down. I needed a system. I needed a way to start producing books at a regular pace as quickly as I, w I could manage um, and get them out there, build a body of work. And so um, starting in 2013, that's that's what I started doing. And I, for a time, was producing a book a month. Um, and wow, you know, that's pretty impressive. Books, book you know? a month there. I mean, they're and they're full length. I mean, they're big books. It sounds like they're not the yeah, little yeah. novellas. Yeah. No, then that wasn't the novellas. That was you know, um, I finished the third book in that Citadel series. I wrote three books in um, my uh, Sawyer Jackson series, which is a sort of a YA fantasy series. Uh, I wrote a couple of other you know sort of one off books. You know, and then, and then in between, I did. I wrote short stories and novellas quite a bit, but. Um, the key for me was to develop that that daily writing habit and the the process I wrote on an entire book about this called 30 day author and the process was really you know put your butt in a chair and write every day but here's some here's some ways you can make that happen that aren't so painful cuz I and I recount this in that book but I 
at one point, so I'm flipping through. I, I keep, I've always had journals. I love Moleskine notebooks, <laughs> and I've got hundreds of them. And I was flipping through some of them. I was typing them up. I was trying to consolidate them, an ongoing project in my life. But I found an entry that says I was writing affirmations, okay, uh, and, and sort of goals. And I wrote down, um, I will find two hours a week hmm. to write. And I looked at that, and at the time, I was writing every single day for a minimum of two hours. Like I hmm. was, I was. I, I, it blew me away that I went from this was only a few years, you know, a couple of years prior, that I went from this idea of I, I, I just can't even force myself to write for two hours a week, and uh, all the way to I, I write five thousand words a day. Um, I think that that's fairly incredible. And it changed the trajectory of my career once again. I mean, it changed my life. Um, everything I did from that point forward, I mean, I was, I went from, you know, working as a copywriter, working in marketing, working in film and TV, even. I went from doing all those things to working in publishing. Um, and it, it's been interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about switching genres. Uh, you went from uh, sci-fi fantasy to uh, thrillers. You created this ca character named Dan Kotler. Sounds a lot like uh, Encyclopedia Jones or whatever, or Brown. <laughs> Encyclopedia right? Brown. Yeah, it sounds a, he sounds a lot like Dan Kotler, doesn't he? I mean, so he let's could, talk about that. He could be. Yeah, yeah he, he could be up. the grown-up version of, yeah. of um, Encyclopedia Brown. Here's let's a, talk about was, that series. Yeah, that series is my um, – so it started as a as a dare. Um, Nick Thacker, good friend of mine, brother of mine really. He's a, a fellow brother in Christ and he uh, – we did a podcast together for a while called Self-Publishing Answers. Um, he dares me on air. We had co-written like three books together. He dares me on air to write a thriller all on my own. You know, sort of shift genres, and uh, I took the dare, and I I wrote that first book, and the first book is called the Quelo Medallion. It's it's, or some people will call it the Coelho Medallion, and I understand why, because uh, <laughs> it's Portuguese, um, and that book was kind of my way of just you know throwing a bunch of old ideas I had on the page, um, pulling them together, you know, unifying them as a story, and and getting it out the door. Um, to fulfill the dare, uh, what ended up happening was something I never would have predicted. Uh, that, that book suddenly, uh, it hit, you know, number one on uh, a few lists, you know, it, hit, it was a bestseller. Um, it was, uh, it ended up winning an award. Um, it was very well received by everyone who read it. Flaws and all, there are some major flaws in that book that I will be repairing soon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's, you know, flaws and all that book was beloved. And uh, and more than that, I found suddenly that I just I really enjoyed the story. I really enjoyed spinning that kind of story. Mm -hmm. um, and like I've done with other books, I decided, well, I've, I did it once. Can I do it again? So I wrote the next book, which was also kind of a gag in a way. I called it the Atlantis Riddle. Uh, if you are a sci-fi reader, you may have heard of the, uh, the Atlantis Gene, written by yeah. A.G. Riddle. A.G. Riddle. A.G. Yeah. Uh, Riddle. And, um, and so that the, the name of the book was kind of an allusion to him and, a, and sort of a sight gag, you know. Um, 
that book also did incredibly well. It's probably one of my best-selling books. Um, and then I wrote a third one called The Devil's Interval, uh, which has done well as, uh, also. And so it's it's just it's become I've become so enamored of those characters and the the sort of storytelling style. Um, I met up with a, a fellow thriller author named Ernie Dempsey, who um, we were we were lamenting. We were at Nink. Uh, this past September, and we were lamenting the fact that uh, we didn't know how to describe our books to people. When people ask us what you write, you know, we'd say, well, I write a thriller kind of like Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code. Um, but there was no genre I could say. I could say thriller, but most of the, you know, that's a pretty broad genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't a historical thriller, um, even though there was history involved. It wasn't, you know, supernatural. There wasn't anything because, like Because uh, Dan Cotler, he's kind of... He's kind of Indiana Jones, archaeologist, smart yeah. guy, right? He's a little bit of every, right? right? He's, so. a, he's a multi-hyphenate, like he's a multiple PhD. Uh, he studied uh, anthropology and uh, quantum physics. I mean, he's that's his, his field of expertise. He's an expert in body language. Um, in the, the core, now I've had people, some people complain about that idea, like he's a Superman. He's an intellectual Superman. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I get com- he gets compared to uh, Indiana Jones quite a bit. He's a modern day Indiana Jones. Uh, he's a Robert Langdon if you uh-huh. read uh, Dean Brown's books. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the whole point of the guy, he embodies all the things I kind of always wanted to be myself. Mm-hmm. He, he studies the fields that always interested me that I always studied. Uh, he is essentially me on the page, <laughs> but uh, with the he's a bit more of a womanizer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's so the the point of that was uh, he actually is studying um, who we are and why we are. You know, why we are the way we are, you know, what the meaning of life is, that sort of thing. Uh, You know, what's our purpose on Earth? So, you know, his his chosen route for that was science. Um, I don't hit on his spirituality much so far. I've started laying some breadcrumbs for this, though. Like I I intend to have him have a uh, well, I may even make it somewhat literal uh, coming to Jesus moment in in the books because I I want to see his reaction. Um, I want to see how he handles things. His partner, um, FBI agent Roland Denzel, uh, no relation to my good friend and exercise uh, guru, fitness <laughs> guru Roland Denzel. Uh, that was a purely a coincidence. <laughs> I had written the book before I met Roland, um, but his FBI agent buddy and partner. Um, is is pretty clearly uh, uh, I think I'm thinking he's Catholic. I haven't defined it yet, but he's <laughs> he's he's made some references that make me believe. You know, this is a fun thing, by the way. I don't uh, I let my characters reveal themselves. I don't I don't plot out anything. I don't, I'm a pantser all the way, so I don't know what these characters are going to say and do. They, you got to you got to put a Texas Baptist in there. You got to put a Texas Baptist in there. You know, I that's well, how, man. Yeah, yeah that's how that's how you get back to those guys who like you know you know you went to Houston Baptist Unit. Those guys you didn't like. Put them in the book. <laughs> you know, you know. I, 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 don't get me wrong. There was nobody I didn't like. I, I'm just saying there was a whole sort of judgy atmosphere that I've encountered a few times. Hey, I, I went uh, to Christian school too, so I'm recovering. Yeah, I'm, uh, recovering. Uh, yeah, I know <laughs> what you're talking about. Christian yeah, schools. Yeah. 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 So, exactly. 
Hey, um, I kind of see what you did. One of the things I I, I like what you did about the the titles of your book, you know, you're kind of there's I see a pattern. You're putting some popular search terms in your title there. That's a little little hack that uh, um, I don't know. Did did you invent that? Did you invent that little hack? I did not invent that. Well, I I did it. um, It started as a, a. accidental gag really so quelo um, is uh the the author oh. name of the alchemist right so quelo right. oh, paulo so, quelo paulo quelo yeah. and then uh ag riddle you know so those are some Wrote. some some yeah. some names so i hey that i think that's a a, a little if smart you read, little if you read the books every every major character um dan kotler is na- actually named for uh dan brown and another author whose last name is kotler um Roland Denzel was not named for an author, but just accidentally turns out to have, have an author's name. <laughs> but a lot of the characters end up with the names of various authors. Um, I just thought that was a fun thing to throw in there. It's not something I'll, I'm not going to go out of my way to do it all the time. But, uh, you know, I tend to, um, when I need the name of a character, you know, I will kind of reach around and see if I can figure out, you know, <laughs> is there an author? Is there an author name that would work for this yeah. or two author names that would work for this? And, uh, you know, they don't own the market on that name. I can I can mix and match. It's fine. <laughs> so so I got an idea for uh, the title of your next next uh, bestseller. You ready for it? All right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you should call your next book. Uh, ready Martian one. Ready Martian what? one. I've, uh <laughs> Someone's already probably taking it. It's already locked in there. It's already in there. Uh, Ready, Marshall. Yeah. yeah. The Weir connection. Yeah. That's right. Some, that's right. It would be something like that. Yeah. 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 That's that's funny. Now the that's next. Uh, funny enough, the next the next Dan Kotler book is in progress, nearly done. I'm about ninety percent hmm. done with it. Uh, I'm mostly editing now. Um, it will be called uh, the Girl in the Mayan Tomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Does she have a tattoo? Does she have a tattoo? She, she may well have a tattoo. Okay. Uh, she <laughs> She's not on a train though. Is she on a train? <clears throat> I don't know how she got there. She may have been a train there. I love uh, it. That's yeah, great. No, that's, that's and, and and part of that is of course strategic. Yeah. Um and a lot of almost every so I work in titles. That's mm-hmm. how I get to track my ideas, right? Uh, Nick and I have conversations all the time. And a lot of these titles, like the whole Atlantis riddle, that started as a joke, man. It was a joke between me and him. I said, I said we should co-author a book called The Atlantis Riddle because we had interviewed A.G. Riddle on, on uh, uh, Self-Publishing Answers. And he had said, uh, when asked about how he markets his work and how he achieved his success, he uh, had responded, um, well, I just wrote a good book. And we, we once we got past the urge to find him and strangle him, <laughs> uh, we thought we our revenge would be, you know, write a book called The Atlantis Riddle. Now I should say, A.G. Riddle is a, a f- wonderful guy. <laughs> He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um, but uh, you know that was an aggravating statement to hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a riddle. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about just the, your writing process. Um, you know, who yep. do you write for? Who's your audience? What's your writing process? You got a sweet spot anywhere? Yeah, I um, my ideal reader is me. Um, I write the book that I want to read. And uh, it just so happens that I am uh, in the same audience as the folks who love Dan Brown books and love Clive Custler books. So, uh, you know, it's it's a funny thing. Um 
they you get that advice and, and Stephen King, you know, he talks about his ideal reader being uh, Tabitha his wife, King. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I wish I could say my wife was my ideal reader, but I think she's only read two of my books. I mean, she <laughs> has 38 to go. She's she's loved them, uh, but she's, you know, she's got plenty of other books she wants to read, she says. So <laughs> I don't hold that against her. But, you know. I had to decide early on who, who it was I was writing for, and I tried the whole exercise of creating the ideal reader, writing out a description, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I I have problems with that that sort of um, method because I, I what I end up doing is overdoing it. I can't write that character. Uh, I can't I can't create that that ideal reader um, because uh, every single book I think has a different generic ideal reader. Uh, whereas if I write the book I want to read, uh, now I've got someone to aim for. And, um, so that's, that's part of my, my method. And as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a complete pantser. I don't outline. Um, I just, I just have never been very successful at that. I've written books that way and, uh, they took, you know, four times as long and didn't come out half as good. Uh, so what I've done is I've developed a, a sort of process and I've stolen things here and there from, from other authors that, that make it work. Uh, most notably I've, I've kind of swiped a few things out of the toolbox that, uh, Dean Wesley Smith has created where he does this thing called cycling, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm a big fan of, but he writes, he'll write 500 words and he'll go back and edit those 500 words and then he'll keep going on and do the next 500. Um, now, I, I don't do 500 words that way. I'll do a chapter, and then I'll go back and reread that chapter the next day before I start writing the next one. I'll read and edit that chapter, and then I'll start the next chapter. Um, uh, or I'll, at the very least, I'll go back and read half the chapter <laughs> to get my momentum going. So, uh, and then occasionally what I'll do is if I get to a point where I feel stuck, where I feel like uh, the ideas aren't coming or... Um, the, you know, it's not, the story isn't working for me or, you know, I don't know what to do next. Um, I'll, I'll occasionally go back to the beginning and read and edit everything up to that point. And then the momentum is back and I just keep going. So, um, it's, that's a method that works really well for me. I, I recognize it doesn't work for everybody, but I don't, I think a lot of people are afraid to try it because <laughs> it is kind of like, it is sort of like being out there without a net, you know, you're, you're gonna you're gonna make this tightrope walk across the Grand Canyon, and it's just you and the wind, you know. Um, but I, I think that it was exhilarating the first time I figured out that this was how things worked for me, um, and I I get a much better result than when I try to outline. I I entered a contest uh, to try to co-author with James Patterson, and it required me to outline a, a book to enter. Um, and then I, I quickly realized what a nightmare it was going to be to write with James Patterson. Like I, it's going to be, it's going to kill me, uh, if I win this, but I'm going to do it because, you know, that could have been a, a an interesting, you know, turning point in my career. Uh, I didn't get picked, but I still have that outline and I've tried a dozen times to write that book hmm. and, um, I will eventually write that book, but I think what will happen is I will, I will write that book because I have the idea uh, but I'll only be able to write it when I forget about the outline. <laughs> and so I'll start writing it from scratch. 
would uh, would you say that although the plot, uh, you know, the storyline, you haven't plotted it out, but because you you're so clear about the character um, mm-hmm. that that just helps you. I mean, you could you could pants your way through the story because, you know, you know, your character so well. He's very right. developed. Is that yeah, uh, think, did you I work on creating that character ahead of time to you know get his thoughts or did that even um, just shape itself? No, that the, so I don't um, I don't do any any sort of pre writing. Um, the characters evolve uh, on the page in front of me. Um, they they really do have a mind of their own. I, I, it's it's a kind of schizophrenic way to approach writing, but uh, the honest truth is I'll introduce a character. And almost immediately, there will be some quirk, some personality quirk uh, that this character exhibits. Uh, and once they do, it informs me of who that character is. Like a, a, they'll pop a joke or they'll get offended about something or they'll, you know, uh, make a suggestion or something. And then suddenly I realize who this character is uh, or at least a, a large portion of their personality. And then I develop that character over time. <clears throat> These... Um, the two characters, the two protagonists in uh, there is a protagonist and a I, I don't know how to refer to this guy. He's not his, Batman he's Robin. Not his, yeah, it's kind of a sidekick scenario, but honestly, he's a co-protagonist. Um, but the two main characters in the in the uh, Dan Cotler books, um, they could not be more different. Honestly, <laughs> they uh, but they're both fully fleshed out personalities. They both have. Um, just a they they just have a ton of quirks and a ton, they they butt heads on things, uh, but they, you can tell that they're they are brothers in arms. Like you can you can just feel the connection between them, yeah. even though um, they are very different in their approach to life and the world. Um, Dan Cotler is a, a free spirit kind of guy. He does not like being uh, tied down. He's an independent all the way. Um, even though he is, he he has his PhDs. He has no affiliation with um, a university, and he likes it that way. Um, he is independently wealthy, so he doesn't need funding. He can go do the things he needs to do, um, and he's not much of a rule follower. Whereas Roland Denzel is very much a rule follower, and so those two characters, though, um, they're in a lot of ways are similar to, you know, other characters I've written, but they're very distinct. And the way I reach that distinction is to follow them, to just let them lead wherever we're going to go. Um, and because of that, uh, I can just throw things at them and then that becomes the story. Um, when I start writing, I don't necessarily know where the book's going to go. I don't know. I have a title. (laughs) <laughs> I always start with a title. And uh, and so the title informs sort of the uh, the start of the action and the end of the action, basically. Uh, but I don't necessarily have a beginning and end in mind. I, I just sort of create a scenario that fits the title, and uh, I let the characters react to it for the next 60,000 words. So, you uh, Do they surprise you all the time? Constantly, man. I mean... Yeah. Dan, Dan Collar will say things that will literally make me laugh out loud. Um, and, uh, and he's Is just he funnier than Kevin Tumlinson. I don't know. He's, he's <laughs> maybe not funnier. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we share, we share the same wry sense of humor. Um, but I'm probably more of a goof than he is. Yeah. He's, uh, although he has a nice sense of humor, he's very, he's got a dry wit and he's very, um, intelligent. Um, 
but he doesn't always go for the laugh the way I do. So yeah. we're we're different in that way. <laughs> he's he's not an insecure writer as, That's right. as we all are. He's not insecure. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the funny thing is I you know, I've written a couple of uh, you know, uh, I'm a pastor, I've written a couple of books, kind of Bible study, motivational, inspirational thing. But I, I've been working on um writing a fiction book and you know, kind of halfway plotting, halfway pantsing. And the crazy thing is when I pants, my character just starts cussing all the time and doing stupid things. And I, I was like, yeah. my, I can't publish this. I'm a pastor. And <laughs> I have to put it away. It's like, man, I, maybe I need to uh, get a pen name and get it out there. But uh, Maybe my, so. Like, what... <laughs> I, I understand that dilemma because, you know, as, as you know, I write under my own name. I have my own brand. Um I'm known to be a Christian. I'm known to be a fairly clean guy when it comes to language, you know. Uh, you know, and I'll, man, I'll, I will curse a blue streak every now and then, and people know that. Uh, people who are close to me know that. Uh, and I don't make any apologies for it, but the I try to my, – my books tend to be pretty low-key as far as language goes, but every now and then I'll have a character pop up. One in particular is a character named Sarge who – pops up every, every so often in my books. Um, and he's an ex military, you know, he's one of these guys, he's always got a cigar and, you know, hanging out of the corner of his mouth and he's, you know, got a handlebar mustache and he just, the dude can light you on fire <laughs> with what he says. And I, I find myself toning him down quite a bit. And it, that's a difficult scenario because it is, it is, it informs his character. Yeah, like he is that guy. You know that yeah. guy. Um, it's hard for me to justify putting that stuff in print because people are going to read that, and, and uh, that you know there's an expectation because of who I am that they're going to that that book's safe to read, mm-hmm. um, and so I tone it down a lot. Uh, but I try not to be afraid of language. You know, I try not yeah. to to let that bother me. But yeah, I, I could totally see if I were. You know, pastor, I could. <laughs> you might want to uh, think about pin name. Yeah, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your faith and how it has impacted your your fiction. I mean, you don't write Christian Amish romance, right? No, you I don't, don't write yeah. that stuff. You don't write your you write thriller. Someone's dead, or there's a yeah. you know sci-fi worlds are blowing up, and right. but you're a Christian. So how has your faith? impacted your your fiction and your your love of story and storytelling yeah i i I mean i tell people i am a christian who is an author not a christian author um and there is a distinction there you know but the 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 impact i mean when i um was growing up i mean stories were such a rich part of my life i mean i everyone i knew was a storyteller um our pastor was a storyteller um those things just fascinated me when he, you know, I just was always keyed in to, uh, to metaphor and to, you know, the, the stories that my pastor would tell on, on, you know, on the stage in front of everyone, um, were so engrossing at times. Uh, so, and then, you know, Christ himself was a storyteller. So there's a lot of that. It's a, it's a rich part of the, my history. Um, and, uh, I mean, the ways that that has shaped my, my career and my work, <clears throat> well, it does keep, you know, it does keep me kind of in line. Like I don't, I don't want to create a body of work that does not represent those values. Um, but I also believe strongly that 
we can live uh, we can live our lives uh, as examples without <clears throat> hindering ourselves, without hampering ourselves. Uh, so I try to I try to I don't try to shove my faith into anyone's face uh, by any means. But if you you know you've listened to my podcast, I mean I don't shy away from it either. So uh, what it is is a part of who I am, and it's it's always been a part of who I am, uh, a part I'm very proud of. So. Uh, as far as how it influences the fiction, I mean, it's just, it's one more source of inspiration and, you know, it's, it's another center for me. I, I, I know that if I'm, if I feel like something's off track, I know I can return to that center. Um, you know, if something doesn't feel quite right to me, you know, if I feel, cause occasionally I'll write something and I, I have qualms about it. There's that little nagging voice in me. And I feel that's the Holy spirit. You know, I feel that that's, that's God whispering to me saying that was clever Kevin but that's going to be a stumbling block for somebody and the last thing I want is to be a stumbling block it would be probably okay it would be perfectly okay if I did what we talked about if I had a pen name and no one knew I was a Christian but because people do know I'm a Christian it does it does present a challenge like I have to be ready to be accountable for uh, the influence that the work has not just the the words but just you know, what is this, what is my writing making other people think and do? Um, and be, how is it making them behave? Uh, I'm responsible for that. You know, we're responsible for the things that we create and put into the world. The gauge that I use for that is my faith. And so, uh, I try to act responsibly. I don't always succeed, but I try. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate your, your authenticity and your genuineness. And that, that's really, uh, one of the reasons I, I, um, latched onto you. I love your podcast. You're just you're you're you. You're who you are, and there's a lot of trust. You you, you build a lot of trust uh, there in the whole indie publishing world. So thank you for for just being who you are. No, I appreciate that. I mean that's the that's the whole point. I mean I when I started the Wordslinger podcast, I had a few. I had various reasons for that. Um, you know, mostly I wanted an avenue, a venue, really for connecting with other authors and other influencers and and learning from them. And if you pay attention, I mean, the, the show is not specifically me interviewing authors all the time. I talk to just about anybody. I've had people on who represent all sorts of careers. Um, and, and then, you know, some are Christians and some are not Christians. Some are writers and not writers. Uh, but, you know, there's always we can always learn from these people. So that my approach to that has always been, as you said, is, is authenticity. I want to come at that as a real person, uh, at the feet of this, 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 uh, person who can teach me something and then share that with as many people as possible. Um, the podcast has been a life changer for me, actually, <laughs> you know, um, there was an era, a very long and drawn out era in which, uh, the term self-publishing came with this stigma uh, of shame, right? If you self-published, it meant you couldn't get a real publishing contract, and so you were not a real author. Um, that that stuck around for quite a while. When um, and ebooks came on the scene pretty early on. They, they they've actually been around for quite a while. Sony had an ebook reader mm. way back in the nineties. The thing that that changed everything, though, really was Amazon introducing um, the Kindle, and um, not just the Kindle, but the their proprietary format, the the Mobi format. Um, EPUB has become the de facto 
standardization of of ebooks everywhere but you know amazon wanted to own that platform and so they they did things their way um but what they what they did was open up a whole new industry uh by empowering authors they they gave authors the ability to take control of their careers to actually uh bypass gatekeepers that was the message from the beginning there are no no more gatekeepers we can Put your work out into the world, and you can reach as many people as Dan Brown or Stephen King or anybody else. Uh, if you put in, if if you put in the work, if you can, you know, write the the uh, write the books that are of the of the highest quality and market them in the best way, then you too can be a success. Um, that was the promise, and we saw all that come to fruition multiple times since then that that landscape i mean frankly just did it barely existed i mean amazon defined an entire industry there um and then it has just grown from there what amazon started has now sort of spiraled outward and you're seeing all these new not new necessarily uh but all these um well, you could call them competitors, but actually they're just more avenues for growth. You've got Kobo, which is you know in, based in Canada, but it owns, it owns the market essentially in Europe. Um, you've got uh, Google Play, which is a little bit of a smaller player, honestly, for for such a giant software company, but they're they're out there. You've got Scribd, you've got you know Tolino, you've got a whole bunch of you know Barnes and Noble has the Nook. You've got all these different avenues now where authors can uh, reach out and reach a new audience uh, for the first time in history, they can completely own that. Um, and rather than shaving off 90 to 95% or more of their uh, royalties for, for the uh, privilege of reaching those readers, they get to own all of it from beginning to end. Um, that's, that's just incredible. That empowering idea uh, has, has just fueled this, this whole new uh, perspective on publishing, this whole new industry. Um, and it really has changed that landscape, whether the traditional publishers want to agree with this or not, and they don't want to agree with it. <laughs> um, it, it redefined what it meant to be a published author. And now we live in an era where it's much, it's much more respectable uh, than, it, than it was. It's considered much more respectable to be a published author of any stripe now. Um, you've got your good apples and your bad apples, but what I'm seeing is the market kind of takes care of things for you. Um, the readers gravitate towards the work that is the highest quality, the best quality. And the, the rest of that stuff is kind of out there. Everything kind of has this niche, which is interesting. Uh, but you, you don't need this whole gatekeeper mentality anymore. So I, I, it's been fascinating. And, of course, you know, I don't know how deep we want to go, but, you know, I'm a big part of this whole thing now. So <laughs> I get to see it from both sides. Yeah. And and it seems like um, the self-publishing is actually the preferred avenue to go to if you have options. I mean, uh, yeah. like it seems like the better the, the authors are turning down, you know, uh, Six-figure, well, seven-figure um, advances from traditional publishing to to maintain their own uh, their own rights and to publish it themselves. There certainly are some who are doing that. There are, there are a few who are negotiating using their their platforms as a negotiating tool, and they're keeping um, the e rights. They're keeping the e rights. They're keeping the e rights. They're keeping the audio rights. They're keeping you know they're keeping uh, a lot of authors are now doing this thing where they're all they're willing to give up are the foreign rights. 
um, and allow for foreign distribution. So it's in, it's an interesting uh, evolution to to watch, and it's it's still I think pretty early on. I think we're still experiencing the birth pangs of the whole thing. Um, but you've got scenarios now where authors uh, there used to be what's known as the mid list, right? Mm-hmm. And you, for years, we've heard that the midlist is is dying out. That there's you know barely any midlist remaining. The midlist, of course, are those authors who uh, were not Dan Brown or Stephen King. They were, but they were not the lowest selling authors either. They didn't have the one hit wonders. They had a steady flow of books, and they were doing okay. But they're not blockbuster bestsellers. And so the the big five, uh, the big five publishers in those publishing houses, they don't want to invest in those guys anymore. They only want to invest in the bestsellers. Um, and, you know, you can understand why. That's where all the real money comes in with very little overhead. So what you've got is a whole wealth of authors who otherwise would have had careers who can't get a book sold now. Um, and that's where indie publishing has really taken hold because – you can now take that book that you know Random House, you know, twenty years ago would have published, but wouldn't have put much time and effort into, and would have left you, all the marketing work to you anyway. Well, if you're going to do that, why not own seventy percent of your royalty? You know, rather than uh, sell it sell it to one of the publishers and get three percent back, <laughs> and that's only after your advance has been paid off. Uh, forgo the advance, forget the advance, and start dumping any money you can into marketing your book, and and suddenly you're keeping seventy percent of the royalty. So that that you're seeing a growing wealth of 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 successful authors, and by successful I mean they're making their living at it. When you start looking at um, Industry publications, you you're, you'll notice a trend. They're always talking about how only one percent of authors, self-published authors, are successful. They'll define success as making a hundred grand or more a year. Uh, in other words, making a a what they can what they consider a living wage. They forget that outside of Manhattan, fifty to seventy grand is a pretty good living for most people. <laughs> So you've got a lot of authors kind of hitting it in that in that area, and growing. So what we've got is this this sort of new. We've got a new approach to um, the mid list author career. We've got a new way for that mid list author to go out and and really kill it. I know authors who wouldn't have gotten much out of Random House, who are making more than some of Random House's top selling authors, and. If you're going purely by dollars, I mean, that, how can you argue with that as being a success? So. And, I mean, if you're giving 70% uh, versus 3%, you have to sell a lot less books to make the same amount of money. That's exactly right. And that's, what, that's what's so interesting about the, um, the conundrum of the bestseller lists, right? If uh, It used to be that if you were on the New York Times or USA Today bestseller list or the Wall Street Journal list, uh, that was a pretty good indicator of, of your financial success as well, right? Um, but the truth is that those guys, uh, some of those people are making less money than the average indie publisher. Um, and I, I, don't have, I don't have quantifiable uh, numbers to back that up at this exact moment, and that's unfortunate. I just know from personal encounters and personal experience that when you've got 
a guy I've, I have talked to literally people who are on the New York times list who have to go to their day job every day, who are only writing, you know, in the 30 minutes they have on their train ride in, uh, to their office every day. Um, and they're barely making it and they're barely scraping by. And then I'll talk to somebody who, um, you know, has only self published their work, but, you know, is buying. Well, look at Hugh Howie. And the dude bought his you know, custom made catamaran and is selling around the world. <laughs> so he makes well, everyone jealous on Instagram posting those pictures from New Zealand. Yeah. Or whatever. yeah, yeah. Um, it's amazing because there, there's, uh, you know, um, the Martian, Ready Player One, all the, I mean, there's all these independent authors that are just uh, doing great. And then afterwards, they're like, you know, uh, I mean, they, they got, they became bestsellers before they got their publishing contracts. Right. Which I, I kind of feel like is the new, I, I think that's in a way what we used to do. What, what, what has evolved in the traditional publishing industry is um, you can't, most of the big publishers you can't approach with your book. You have to come at them through an agent. Um, there are still publishers who accept unagented, unagented material, uh, but the majority of the big guys, you have to come in through an agent. Well, they're using the agent in place of the first editor, basically. Um, it used to be that you would submit your book to a publisher, and it would go through all these editors before it actually got published. Uh, but there would be that one editor at the beginning of the process who was sort of the uh, the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper became the agents. Um, so now you have to attract an agent who gets a further cut of your work. Hmm. That's infuriating to a lot of us. It's infuriating yeah. to me. Um, but n- what we've got now is a whole process, a whole industry where you don't ha- you don't need any of those guys. If you submitted your work and you got through and uh, you became a bestseller, I think that's fantastic. But what I think is happening is a lot of a lot of people now are building their platforms, getting their audience, making their sales, and when uh, when they get to a certain level of success. Suddenly, publishers are interested in them. Agents are interested in them. They people want a piece of that pie. Um, at that point, you've got much more negotiating power. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with. I would take a, 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 a traditional contract at this point because, unlike the first contract I got, I would have much better terms. I'd be hmm. able to to basically dictate what I'm keeping and what I'm not, and uh, and what I'm. I mean, even J.K. Rowling has um, negotiated her e rights, and she. Her, you know, Harry Potter's on uh, Kindle Unlimited now. I mean, right. she's probably getting a lot of page reads. I'm, I'm betting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we see and, this. We see this in other, um, you know, other. I mean, in the music industry, in in uh, TV, like Chance the Rapper. He was yeah. independent and he won a Grammy and he no one you know he doesn't have to go through all these record labels and taking their their whatever royalty uh, Stranger Things going to Netflix um, exactly I mean it's not it's not uh, lesser quality you are just uh, bypassing the gatekeepers so I mean well people forget that all publishing used to be self-publishing. Um, this, this concept of the, the houses that, that take your work and get it out there in front of people, there was, there's an illusion (laughs) when it comes to that, that, that is uh, the only legitimate way to publish. Um, it wasn't always like that. In fact, that's relatively new in the history of publishing. The, the idea here is, um, self-publishing is an empowering movement. 
It's what I've always loved about it. It's why I love working at Draft Digital. Draft Digital is all about empowering authors. That's what we do. Um, you know, that was a great connection for me. Um, the the whole concept there is give the writer the tools to succeed, and then uh, every, everyone can go out and build their own careers any way they feel comfortable. They don't have to live live by anyone else's ideal. Uh, that whole author empowerment thing is is just fantastic. <laughs> so let's talk about Drafted Digital. You're the yeah. officially director of marketing, and right. you've been on every podcast ever. Every podcast. Uh, yeah, in the past <laughs> few weeks because of a new deal you guys got with Amazon. And uh, right. talked about Drafted Digital and what you offer a independent author and how you can make their lives uh, easier. All right. Um, at its heart, Draft to Digital is a is a um, aggregating uh, distribution service. So, basically, what that means is we uh, will take your manuscript. You can send us an, the electronic version of your manuscript, a Word document, for example. We will convert it for free. We will uh, give you a print layout version of it for free. Uh, everything we do is for free. The only way, we, and you can, you don't even have to distribute through us. But our the way we make money is you would distribute your book through us, and we would send it out to all the other um, ebook retailers. And now that includes Amazon, but it's it includes Barnes and Noble, it includes uh, Kobo, Tolino, a whole bunch of others. Um, and then we get a cut of the royalties whenever you sell a book through us. That's how we make our money. Everything else we do is free, and and. There are no caveats. Like you can actually come in, use us to convert your your book to an ebook or to a print layout, and then take that book elsewhere and do whatever you want with it. It's your book. We're never going to try to claim any ownership. We don't own any rights to your work. So again, that's the whole author empowerment thing. Um, now we prefer that you distribute through us because that is how we make our money. <laughs> but the way we attract the authors is we try to give them the highest level of customer service that they can get. Uh, and believe me, that's it's that's a differentiator because <laughs> just today I was reading a whole um, series on a, a whole series of posts on uh, Kboards, which is an author forum. Um, and uh, people were very upset with some of the folks at Streetlib. Streetlib is technically one of our competitors, although we don't really, we don't really fall into the whole competitor thing. Um, but Streetlib is like us; they're very similar to us. Um, but people are kind of getting upset with them and not getting quite what they think they should out of them. Um, and uh, one of the biggest complaints is customer service. We try, we work very hard to make sure that's never a complaint about us. So you know we've got real live humans who sit in Oklahoma City, <laughs> in the, in our offices there, who answer phones and answer emails. And uh, we got me on uh, social media. I, I basically monitor all the social media stuff. Anytime someone has a question, I'm pretty much the guy answering. You know, um, so that's what we provide for the author is a whole raft of services that help them do the work so that all they have to worry about is writing. Uh, we want, and ultimately our goal is to create a service that lets you just write so that everything else is taken care of piece by piece. We're building that and we get closer all the time. Um, I encountered these guys cause I interviewed, you know, on my show, I interviewed Dan Wood, who is the uh, director of marketer, Mar director of author relations with uh, Draft to Digital. <clears throat> um, afterwards, I, I just 
said, you know, I was trying to get, I was trying to close down my copywriting business, uh, and, uh, make more connections in the publishing world. And I said, uh, you know, if you guys ever need some marketing help, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to help out. And he ran that by his guys. And about a month or so later, they, they, uh, I did not know they were doing this, but they had been listening to my show for quite some time. And every time I mentioned draft to digital, they, you know, they, they noted that. Uh, so they came to me and said, you know, you're already talking about us. You're already representing us. Why don't you, uh, come on board and do that for some money? And, um, I was happy to do that. I had originally just planned to just do a little bit of copywriting for them, hopefully get them to introduce me to some folks and that sort of thing. But it actually turned out to be probably one of the best moves we both could make because <laughs> we just fit very well. So, you know, I continued to write and publish and then I go and, you know, attend conventions and hop on podcasts and that sort of thing and talk about these guys. And it, it's, they're a wonderful company full of really good people. Yeah. I, uh, drafted digital has been, I mean, increasing in size and volume and there's all the, I mean, it's just crazy. Um, you're doing some really good work. Uh, yeah, one of the makes- questions I want to ask you is about, uh, Christian authors specifically, mm-hmm. because, um, in general, it seems like Christians are slow to adopt new things. I mean, yeah. we're just kind of slow, and and this also applies to the self-publishing world. Um, right. I mean, what would you say um, to Christians to encourage them? Christian authors, maybe they're aspiring or they're new authors or they're midless. Um, what would you say to encourage Christian authors to jump into the world of self-publishing or indie publishing? This okay, and why now? I think right now is the perfect time to do it. Um, the thing is, this there's never been a moment in history where you had more control over your own content and your ability to reach your specific audience um, because of the nature of self-publishing and indie publishing. You never have to worry about when he snares. One of the things that happens a lot with Christian authors, uh, I don't know if you remember the whole Tate publishing thing was within the past like a year or so. Um, they were a big self-publishing Christian outfit, right? Um, they were taking straight up advantage of authors. I mean, they're, these guys, these, these guys are going to prison. I mean, this, <laughs> that's how bad this was. Um, and there's some pretty scary stuff happening out there. So, that's put a bad taste in the mouth of, of some folks. Um, and, uh, it, it, it makes them afraid. Uh, but the, the key difference between them and other self-publishing tools and outlets is that, um, they owned everything. Like they would bring you in, they'd charge you money in order to take control of your book and, and tell you what they're, what you're going to do with it. Um, and it was thousands and thousands of dollars. On the other hand, a company like draft digital or even some of the guys that are supposedly our, our competitors like Smashwords or street lib or whatever. Um, you continue to own your work. You can continue, you can choose what outlets you want to distribute to you. How, can, how much you want to charge, how much you want to charge, how, whether or not you want to do promotions, all that stuff is, is within your hands. Um, you never have to worry about if, uh, if, if an outlet, uh, that you're distributing to decides that they're going to come out and openly proclaim that we're Satan worshipers and that and we like it that way, you can decide to no longer let them have money, uh, make money based on your books. You know, you can do whatever you like. Um, so this is the time. I mean, we're, we're in this era where, uh, sort of ownership is, is finally within our reach. We, 
there are little pieces of the pie that we have to sacrifice in order to to have that ownership and have that control, but they're so small. I mean, it's it's it, being able to get a sixty to seventy percent royalty on your work uh, is unheard of in history. I mean, we we it just never really worked that way. So, you know, for Christians in particular. Um, I think that the key is that you, you know, you can get this. There's a sort of marketing education that happens when you become an indie author. Uh, you need to pay attention to that because it, it really is important. But you know, all these things that that you, all these tools and resources, they allow you to choose how your work is going to get out to the world. Um, Christian authors, in particular, you have a message as part of your work. You know, you have a purpose for your work. That's what I. That's the way I think of Christian authors at any rate. Uh, I am a Christian who writes, but you are a Christian. You write Christian fiction or Christian nonfiction. You're trying to influence the world uh, with your faith. So you, you kind of wouldn't you want to have ownership of that? Wouldn't you want to be able to control that so that you can shape that message any way you like rather than surrendering it to someone else who may have a different vision and a different message in mind? Um, so I think, honestly— there's almost a sort of almost an obligation, like a moral and ethical obligation for you to, <laughs> to get out there and take control of your career and uh, and do this the right way. But um, that said, I mean, there are those who who fall back on traditional publishing outfits and I, they're wonderful. I've met several uh, uh, numerous people in the traditional publishing world, and that is the route to go for some folks. So you shouldn't think of this as it has to be one way or the other. You can actually get into self-publishing as a way to build up your, I guess, your portfolio in a, a sense, but build, you know, build up your body of work so that you could attract a, 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 a traditional publisher if you feel that's much more in tune with your career. So it really just comes down to deciding what you want your career to be. <laughs> that's uh, amazing uh, advice, Kevin. Um, one last question uh, for you okay. here. Uh, Ten years from now. Let's think about 10 years from now. Uh, what, right. what does the publishing landscape look like, and what is the Wordslinger doing in 10 years? What does your career look like? All right. Um, the publishing landscape, I firmly believe, 10 years from now, we will have gone into a fully hybrid model, meaning the best of both traditional and indie publishing will be ours. Um, traditional publishers will be there to pick up and promote uh, the indie published work that's out there. I think that's where we'll be. Um, the, the tools and resources of the, the big houses will be at the disposal of the, the author who owns his or her work for free. Maybe not for free, but even if it is something, even if they're taking percentages of the, uh, of the revenue, uh, they're taking smaller percentages because their overhead would be less. Uh, I think what would happen, what will happen, is we'll have a sliding scale. Because if if I had the marketing reach of Random House behind me, uh, I, I'm happy to take care of overhead such as cover design, editing, you know, that sort of thing. But if I'm not comfortable with those things, so I think what will happen is um, it'll be your comfort level that determines how much you you buy in, right? So I believe that traditional publishers will start offering each tier of their services for another percentage of the book. So they may end up owning 50 to 60 percent of a book, right? But it'll be because you you know 10 percent goes to um, marketing, 10 percent goes to cover design, 10 percent goes to you know whatever. Um, 
I feel like that's probably the the direction they, that the industry is going. I think eventually traditional publishers will will catch on to the fact that indie publishers are going to be much more successful and much better at uh, a, a much more uh, adaptive and be able to pivot much easier. Um, so they're going to want to adapt some of the, adopt some of those strategies for themselves. And then at the same time, indie publishers are going to realize that if they can partner with a traditional publisher, partner being the key word here, uh, both entities get much more out of it. So uh, as far as where I see the wordslinger in uh, 10 years, well, I mean, my goal is to, uh, uh, unfortunately, and this may be sad for some folks, but uh, I probably will have retired the wordslinger podcast by then. I'll probably have retired from... Uh, just about everything except the writing itself, the writing and publishing itself. Cause I, every day I'm working on that and I'm growing into making this much more self-sufficient. So my goal ultimately is, uh, you know, that all I'm doing is writing and publishing, <laughs> you know, and I'll do appearances and I'll do that sort of thing. I'll go to conferences and that sort of thing, but it'll be, uh, you know, as part of the promotion of my own work. So I, but by then what I want my legacy to be, um, essentially, I want to walk out of this right now. I'm I'm known as the voice of indie publishing. I, I want to have, I want to bow out of these things, having influenced so many will be authors into becoming, you know, empowered, uh, self confident, successful authors. Um, that you know, my Wikipedia entry, you know, <laughs> includes an entire section about the voice of indie authors. You know, I want I want that to be a legacy that I leave behind. Um, and it will be, I, I, I honestly believe that, but ultimately my career goals include me writing and publishing full time, all, all for myself. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Kevin, thanks for your time. Uh, how can it, people man. find out more about you, uh, more about drafted digital? I, I think you're giving away a uh, Quelo medallion for free right now. That's uh, on my website right now. Yeah. 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 Why don't uh, you uh, tell them about your website? You can pick that up at kevintomlinson.com. That's my that's my author page. Um, right now, that's the funnel for all things Kevin Tomlinson. You can go to wordslingerpodcast.com if you want to tune into the show, which I highly recommend if you're an author. Um, and, of course, you can go to drafteddigital.com. We've got all the various spellings of that, but officially it's draft and the number two digital.com. Uh, and reach out. You can you can actually uh, reach out to us via email, phone, whatever, Twitter. Uh, tell them I sent you. Uh, I don't get anything at all out of it, but it's always nice to hear feedback from people who caught me on a podcast or something. So reach out. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. You got it, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening today. We hope you found it helpful. If you like the show, please help us spread the word by subscribing to the podcast or by leaving a rating or review. You can connect with me on my website, tndone.net, where I have lots of helpful resources available to you for free. My website is tndone.net. That's spelled T-H-I-E-N-D-O-A-N.net. See you next time. And remember, you can change the world with your words.